Say the word slavery, and you may conjure up images of large-scale plantations, the Middle Passage, Harriet Tubman, Solomon Northup, or even the timeless words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The first Thanksgiving, or the Mayflower, do not often come up, but those stories also have an essential role to play as historians delve deep into the spectrum of unfreedom in our nation's colonial past. At Plymouth Plantation, our goal is to understand, to the best of our ability, the 17th century historical and cultural landscapes inhabited by the English pilgrims and the Wampanoag of southeastern Massachusetts and the islands. To do that, we sometimes need to ask hard questions that reveal a different, perhaps more darker narrative than we've heard before. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Linford Fisher, an associate professor of history at Brown University, where he teaches and conducts research on the cultural and religious history of colonial America and the Atlantic world, including Native Americans, religion, material culture, and Indian and African slavery and servitude. He's written numerous articles, and his first book was entitled Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America, which was published in 2012. And he has co-authored Decoding Roger Williams' The Lost Essay of Rhode Island's Founding Father. And he's currently at work on a new book exploring indigenous and African enslavement in colonial New England and the English Atlantic Islands, which is what brings him today to our podcast. So, Lynn, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Hillary. It's great to be here. So you often refer to a term, the spectrum of unfreedom in the colonial Atlantic world. And I used that term in my introduction. Can you define spectrum of unfreedom for our listeners and explain why you choose this term to refer to slavery in the Americas? Sure. So I think in slavery studies more generally, and perhaps in wider historical studies, there's a growing sense that this older binary of slave versus free or slavery versus freedom doesn't often adequately describe what we are finding on the ground in terms of real-life lived situations that enslaved and, uh, people and servants faced. And increasingly in my own work, and I know, uh, you know dozens of other people are finding this as well, um, there's a whole range of situations that people could find themselves in that were sometimes ambiguous and, and unclear. And so when you sort of step back and take all the different kinds of possible situations that people found themselves in that weren't free in the way that we might imagine them or that they might have desired them to be, suddenly you, it makes more sense to think about, as you said, and I've said, a spectrum of unfreedom. That is to say, um, on the one side of that spectrum, you might have something like white servitude or even Native American servitude or, or African servitude that is um, determined by a certain length of time and actually involves a contract. So it's servitude, kind of classic uh, indentured servitude, and you do find Africans and Indians who are also in this kind of situation. But then you also, on the other end of that spectrum, find, um, and I will say that that's not typical for African slavery, right? But there are a few cases. But on the other side, you find what's more common, which is uh, lifelong, um, heritable slavery that both blacks and uh, Native Americans uh, were forced into for a variety of reasons. And then in between, you have different kinds of murkier situations where you might have um, a limited term enslavement or someone who's sold off for a certain amount of time. Uh, and I think that studying Native American slavery, for me at least, um, helps to complicate this binary in that often Native Americans weren't enslaved for life, not uh, in every situation. Uh, many, many were, but not every situation. And more importantly, it was not always the case that they were absolutely, um, uh, that, that their children were always enslaved as well. So the inheritability of, of slavery um, as an institution or as an experience by the children of indigenous slaves was not nearly as universal as with African slaves. So somehow to, to get a, a sense of this larger picture, I think this new vocabulary of unfreedom and the spectrum of unfreedom uh, is helpful, at least for many of us. But at the same time, um, the purpose here is not to diminish the horror of slavery more generally or to suggest that slavery was less 
awful than we thought or to decenter African slavery. Um, slavery in any of these situations uh, was, was completely uh, awful and undesirable. Um, so even Africans and, and natives who were uh, under sort of, and even whites in a sense, who were under certain kinds of bonded labor uh, or contractual labor, Reports from the Barbado, from Barbados and Jamaica and other places indicate that even um, indentured servants could be treated horrifically uh, during those five to seven years of, of indenture. So it's all uh, unpleasant, and the point is not to make it better, but the point is really to understand more uh, fully the different kinds of possibilities within this world of which many people were unfree. And when we're talking about this this world, uh, geographically, let's ground our visitors in and what we're talking about. We refer to an Atlantic world of the 16th and 17th and later in the 18th century. Um, where is the Atlantic world? Yeah, it's a great question. I posed this in a graduate seminar, and my students never let me forget it. And at the end of the seminar, I gave me a map with a pinpoint in the middle of the Caribbean that says, here's the Atlantic world. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a tricky question in some ways, right? Um, I think historically speaking, uh, in terms of processes, we can talk about the Atlantic world as any uh, country, any piece of land that is touching, physically bordering the Atlantic, right? So that includes most of uh, coastal Europe, that includes um, Western Africa, but it also includes coastal, uh, you know, the eastern part of coastal South America, the Caribbean, Central America, and also Eastern North America. So, and just to step back a little bit, the reason why this has become an interesting way to conceptualize and analyze this um, time period, roughly, you know, 1450 through 1900, maybe 1850, is because uh, back in the 1990s, there was a group of people, and even earlier than that, who began to realize that, uh, you know, it's, it's fine that scholars kind of narrow in on one particular empire or national context, whether it's French or Dutch or Spanish or English. But actually, uh, that only gets you so far because the way in which this, this world was experienced and lived uh, in the early modern period, so let's say 1650, um, it was all overlapping and interconne interconnected. So if you were in Barbados or Jamaica or St. Lucia or any of these smaller islands or central Mexico, you were part of a world, or Boston, you were part of a world that um, was really rich and vibrant in terms of trade and movement and migration and forced migration uh, in terms of slavery with commerce uh, and trade goods and people just moving constantly between these different kinds of borders and boundaries. And so the idea of the Atlantic world that really became prominent in the 1990s was a way to step back and get a bigger sense of all this different activity. And so suddenly, instead of just following the pilgrims over from England in 1620, uh, you, you no longer can just see them in isolation. And in fact, you have to recognize that they're part of this much larger world of trade and commerce and even ideas that are um, circulating around and publications. And the pilgrims come over in 1620, yeah, but they know about the Spanish, they know, they know what the French are doing, they're keeping tabs on their Catholic enemies and, and also their, uh, their rivals, uh, Protestants, commercial rivals, the Dutch, uh, who are in what's now New York and Long Island as well. So it's just a really helpful way of, of reframing um, this time period. It makes it far more complicated to study, I will admit, but also makes it far more interesting because you actually get a sense of the richness of the worlds that people inhabit. And this sense of, of, you know, expansion and globalization as, well, I put that in quotes a little bit, but basically it's a globalized age already. Um, but it's also has helped us understand things like slavery and to make comparisons between what's happening in Peru and what's happening, uh, you know, in, uh, on, on Barbados, what's happening um, in, in Florida or the Carolinas or New England. And so getting a sense of comparison, of continuities, of differences across imperial contexts, all of this has been really, really rich. Uh, and I think people now are becoming dissatisfied with just the Atlantic as a, as a realm of study and thinking more about global early modern history because that's actually where the ships were going. They were going not just in the Atlantic, but around the bottom tip of South Africa and South America, often to the Pacific and Indian Oceans. 
So the world is expanding very quickly, and the question is, how do we as scholars represent that expansion, that interconnection, uh, in ways that seem responsible, but also manageable for um, ourselves, but also for readers? I think your point, too, about tracking migrations and looking at where people are going how people are getting from one place to another uh, is really interesting. And in the Atlantic world, of course, as we talk about enslavement, but also as we talk about the earliest contact between European people and and these native populations. And you set up my, my question beautifully, uh, so I thank you for that, because one of our key characters here at Plymouth Plantation that we are constantly um, engaging with is, of course, the character of Squanto or Tisquantum. Mm-hmm. And he is one of the first native encounters Mayflower passengers have with not only a native person, but also with native enslavement. Um, He famously arrives in Plymouth Colony with Samoset, who is an Abenaki man. They arrive in March of 1621. Uh, and if you look at the, the myth of Thanksgiving, he later teaches the pilgrims to plant corn, and that becomes, of mm. course, the first harvest that marks sort of the first year in the New World for this population. But he has a very um, different story that never quite made it into the first Thanksgiving myth and might be a surprise to some of our listeners. Um, can you explain to our listeners the story of Squanto and, and his experience with slavery? Yeah, so it's a really interesting story, and I should step back for a second and say that he was perhaps one of the first uh, who experienced this um, in terms of being sold into slavery, but uh, there was a a longer history that I can touch on again if you want to in terms of early kidnapping by English and other European explorers. But the basic story is that um, in 1614, uh, six years before pilgrims arrive in Plymouth, um, the English are essentially kind of trolling up and down the New England coast. They're scoping out places for settlement. There's already been an attempted settlement farther north, just off the coast of what's now Maine. Uh, John Smith of, of Pocahontas and Virginia fame is a part of these expeditions. He actually draws a map based upon some of uh, his, his travels uh, of New England, one of the earliest maps of New England. So in 1614, uh, there's a group of ships uh, up and down the coast, and uh, along with John Smith's ship is one um, captained by Thomas Hunt. And uh, it's Thomas Hunt's ship that stops off the coast of of Cape Cod. And um, it's it's a common process in a sense. The English, uh, you know, stop to trade, and sometimes they lure some natives on board and then uh, capture them and take off with them. And that's exactly what happened in 1614. Thomas Hunt stops uh, and through a process of bringing natives in under the guise of trade, takes between 27 and 28 natives uh, off the coast and um, takes them directly, and this is where the story gets a little bit more unusual, takes them directly to Malaga, Spain, where he sells them into slavery. And again, without this wider sense of um, the longer history of Atlantic world slavery, which had started really in 1450 with African enslavement uh, by the Portuguese and then putting them to work on on some of the uh, coastal North African islands, um, the Azores, Madeiras, and so forth. Um, it'd be strange for us to think about English people selling uh, enslaved Native Americans into uh, slavery in Spain, but actually there's quite a market for these kinds of people in Spain and elsewhere in 1614. Anyway, so Squanto and these other natives are uh, sold into slavery, and uh, it's, it's not entirely clear how he gets out of slavery, but there are some Catholic priests that help him uh, find his uh, freedom, and Squanto specifically finds his way back to England. We're not sure what happens to uh, many of the other 27 natives. In England, uh, Squanto begins to tell a story. He talks around, finds some people, and... Um, this is, again, where the story gets kind of murky. Uh, there's different accounts, competing accounts, but uh, some people say that he actually went back. Some reports say he went back to New England and then actually quickly was brought back again to England and then taken back to New England again where he found his freedom. Um, and if that's the case, then he actually would have crossed the Atlantic a total of four times one way, which is pretty astonishing to happen within you know three to four years. Anyway, uh, eventually, as you say, um, finds his freedom and shows up very early after the pilgrims arrive in 1620. And so when Samoset and Squanto show up in in Plymouth, 
there's several things that really stand out. First of all, uh, you know, they say hello and they speak uh, English words to the pilgrims, which shocks the pilgrims. Although, uh, you know, the reasons why they can speak English, at least for Squanto, is really astonishing, right? This history of, of being enslaved and finding his freedom and finding his way back across the Atlantic. The second thing that's really tragic is that Squanto, who's this Patuxet Native American uh, who is taken forcibly in 1614, is away uh, over in Europe when a devastating set of diseases uh, and epidemics hit that coastal part of New England where he's from in 1616 and 1618. So by the time he arrives, actually, not only is most of his immediate family and tribe um, dead from these diseases, which went through these villages very, very quickly, but also where the pilgrims end up uh, landing is precisely, um, I'm sorry, not landing, but setting up shop in Plymouth, is precisely uh, where his town and family and, and tribe had been. So. It must have been very jarring for him in very ways, uh, in, in many ways, to come back and to um, try to make peace with the new reality of the presence of Europeans after the experiences he had, but also trying to reconfigure a life in the absence of most of his relatives. Let's look at Squanto's experience, as you said, just for a moment, in context of this larger um, practice of indigenous slavery in the not only in the early 17th century, but as you say, going back to 1450. Because uh, I think his, as you said, his experience is very typical in that he was he was kidnapped, but you've also said that it's atypical. So let's look at the typical first. Um, when did in, indigenous enslavement really start in the New World? You mentioned 1450 and Africans being brought to, the, to Madeira and the Sugar Islands. When do we see the first Native North Americans being brought into Europe? Mm-hmm. Well, to just step back even further, besides North America, I mean, uh, it's kind of a truism, I guess, but just to reaffirm that Native enslavement started the very first moment that Europeans contacted uh, Native Americans, right? So in 1492 in the Bahamas, Columbus shows up. The very first ships that arrive and return back to Spain take back with them Native American captives. And Columbus actually proposes... Uh, to the king and queen that one way to make money in the, in the new world would be to start up a commercial enterprise of kidnapping natives in the Caribbean and bringing them back and, and selling them off into the Atlantic slave market. Uh, this does not uh, get approved necessarily, um, but this is the beginning of a much larger scale Spanish indigenous enslavement in Central and South America. In terms of North America, uh, I think the Spanish would certainly be first in terms of La Florida and uh, coastal kinds of activity. Um, but in terms of the uh, English and other kinds of explorers, um, it's, it was really commonplace. And I, I, it sounds so callous to say this, and it, it's, it's really horrible and wrong, but it just happens all the time. Every single explorer from, you know, whether it was Dutch or, or French or English or Spanish, uh, Portuguese, when they're up and down the coasts of North America, South America, they're mapping, they're stopping, they're trading. As I indicated before, almost every time this happens, uh, they're also taking a few natives from the coast, from the shoreline, and forcing them back to their, their home countries uh, for a number of reasons, for information, to teach them English, to teach them um, maybe, maybe native languages as well. Uh, perhaps as future guides. So this comment, this uh, process is so common that, that over time, coastal natives who have experienced this repeatedly get very, very suspicious about European ships that come off the shore, come to the shore, and want to trade because they're afraid that it's going to involve kidnapping. So Henry Hudson does this, uh, Verrazano uh, is a part of this process, um, you know, uh, sort of in, in northern regions of Canada, this happens as well. So that is... That's typical uh, in many ways, like you said. This is um, unexceptional, and it's par for the course for European exploration uh, in the early period. And why were Europeans bringing native slaves back to Europe? You mentioned um, teaching them English or being educated in, in native languages. What other incentive would you have to kidnap local people and, and bring them back to Europe? I think that there's always lurking back with inside of European 
justifications for what they're doing is this idea that they will also save the souls of Native Americans. And so you see some of this as well. I mean, a part of the process of teaching them English or French or Spanish or Dutch is also this idea that you will also communicate basic ideas regarding Christianity. So I think this is always in the background. Uh, and the French, some Jesuit missionaries begin to systematize this um, more specifically, and, and maybe not kidnap uh, later in the 1630s and 1640s, but put a lot of pressure on uh, chiefs, native chiefs and sachems and so forth to send their children back to France or wherever to be educated. And the hope is they'd come back and then evangelize their um, native uh, town and village and relatives. Are they using, are Europeans using these enslaved people for labor in Europe, or are they curiosities? It's a combination. So I would say, especially in the early years of exploration, there's a lot more curiosity and, and um, sort of exhibitionism than you have later on. So yeah, these whether it's uh, Inuit kind of uh, captives or whether it's coastal New England or from the Bahamas. Um, and it depends who you're talking about as well. I mean, Columbus clearly had a very specific sense of wanting to sell them into slavery, natives into slavery. A lot of European, uh, other European explorers um, do. They go back and they put them on display, right? So this is the interesting thing that before the pilgrims ever come in 1620, Chances are they've seen natives paraded through the streets of London and have a sense of, of who these people are and what they look like. And the same is true in every major city in uh, Spain and, and Portugal and uh, probably in the, in the Netherlands as well. So it's a combination. It's not always uh, kidnapping does not always lead to enslavement in this early period. I mean, they're there against their will. Right. So how do you define captivity versus uh, enslavement, but the labor component might not always be present in some of these early cases where they're just taking it back to show. It's also, honestly, it's, it's a proof of arrival, right? So, um, and, and it's horrible to speak about it that way from a European perspective. If you say that you reach the coast of North America and have a few natives to prove it, that adds credibility to your story, certainly. So after the pilgrims arrive in 1620, um, of course, Boston is settled in 1630. We have settlements in um, in what is now Rhode Island and Connecticut, and growth of English presence in New England um, accelerates dramatically. How does this impact the spectrum of unfreedom we've been talking about, these, these practices of um, indigenous enslavement? Yeah, so in New England, there is uh, two specific nodes of larger-scale enslavement of natives, and that both linked to wars with Native Americans uh, locally in New England as well. So the first is the Pequot War, 1636-1638, and the second is King Philip's War from uh, in the 1670s, from 1675 to 1676. Although you can find instances of native enslavement or at least servitude uh, before and after Pequot War, for example, and in between um, the Pequot War and King Philip's War, it's really during these moments of intense conflict and warfare that suddenly whatever kinds of normal prohibitions against indigenous enslavement that might have been there seem to go out the window and in part because this is within the framework of not just English, but also European mentalities regarding slavery, in part drawing upon a, a longer kind of medieval uh, sense of the law of nations and, and the justification for enslavement more generally that we could also maybe point back to sort of Roman times and precedents as well. The idea is that people that are um, in active conflict with you are also... Um, justifiably the recipients of captivity and enslavement. Uh, and this gets amplified, especially, I think, in many ways when you perceive these people that are rebelling so-called against you, uh, who are also um, kind of racially uh, other as well, that adds to that sort of layer of, of, of justification. So Pequot War, uh, this sort of um, 
complicated war in some ways, but essentially a war of aggression by English colonists against uh, a very large and numerous native nation in what's now southeastern Connecticut. Uh, clearly a lot of nervousness about them as a regional power. Um, English are nervous about Pequot power. And also there's a lot of, of land and resources uh, that they are squatting on. And the Pequots are also trading both with the Dutch and with the English. And so there's a little bit of jealousy in terms of, of trade patterns as well. The war breaks out that the two sort of reasons that are given, uh, supposedly the Pequots had killed two different traders. Um, both were seen uh, as, <laughs> I think by historians, are not seen as justifiable reasons for, for the outbreak of the war. Anyway, the war is, is devastating. It really is intended to crush the Pequots. It truly can be called the first, uh, not the first, but uh, for the English at least, the first uh, genocidal war against Native Americans. Uh, there's a treaty at Hartford and... Um, you know, the Pequots are present, but not really as equals, and the English command that nobody can even use the name Pequot. Uh, so the very name of the Pequot is supposed to be eradicated. So uh, again, I think I, I use genocidal war um, cautiously, but uh, this seems to fulfill that parameter. Anyway, so out of this war, uh, a lot of uh, Pequots are enslaved locally perhaps as many as two to three hundred. Uh, Margaret Newell's great recent book, uh, Brother by Nature, really goes into the details of the way in which the um, Pequots are parceled out into local English households and so forth. And then uh, about 16 to 17 are attempted to be shipped uh, Pequot slaves, uh, enslaved Pequots sent to Bermuda. And actually the ship um, misses Bermuda and ends up in Providence Island, deep in Spanish territory in the uh, Caribbean. And what's most interesting about that is that you have um, an exchange of Pequot captives for African slaves. So the same, same ship that takes down the Pequots uh, who are enslaved to Providence Island returns to Boston in 1638 uh, with uh, enslaved Africans. And this is really... Uh, the first time that um, we have examples or evidence of enslaved Africans being sold into slavery in New England. So that, in that interconnection is really, uh, really striking. And then you have in the King Philip's War, uh, without going into the details of the war itself, um, but, but it's a, a very complicated war, mostly natives against English, but not entirely because the Pequots and Mohegans and some Wampanoags fight uh, with the English. Uh, but the result of the war is that um, several thousand natives are killed and uh, probably uh, at least one or two thousand natives are enslaved either locally or else sent out into the wider Caribbean world. And, uh, you know, part of my research has been tracing down where they go to. And uh, it's clear in terms of the evidence I found that they go to different parts of Spain, uh, to Cadiz, Spain, to they get sent to the Azores in the, the Atlantic um, but also to Tangier on the, the present-day Morocco, which was a British outpost for a while in the 16, uh, 60s and 1670s. It gets sent to Bermuda, to Barbados, to Jamaica, and uh, different parts of the Caribbean that I'm sure I haven't even found evidence for yet. So this, um, and this is all emanating out of New England, right? So this is a piece of New England history that I think we we haven't quite fully wrestled with, right? Our, our, our sense of, you know, Puritans and, and these, you know, godly people inhabiting the landscape and working off the land. Part of the narrative of this region is systematic enslavement of local natives in times of warfare that reverberates for generations. So um, it's not just that they get enslaved and then five years later they're free especially after King Philip's War, there is uh, much evidence of uh, colonies trying to say, okay, um, especially if you were not an act of rebellion, if you were a surrenderer, for example, we will limit your enslavement to between you know, 10 and, and 25, maybe 30 years. Which, you know, it's, it's a pretty harsh punishment, right? The problem is, is that I found a lot of evidence that natives who are given like a 25-year sentence when that 25 years is up, it's very, very difficult to prove that you should be free. And if you've had children in, in that time period as well, it's very, very difficult for you to um, argue that your children should be free. 
uh, even though that would be more customary. Anyway, so you have these court cases in the 1720s, 1730s, and 1740s where natives um, run away, they're brought into court, and they argue that they should have been freed a long time ago and that their children should not be enslaved. And uh, many times they gain their freedom this way, but many times they are unable to. I want to go back just a moment to the Pequot War in the 1630s. You talked about Pequots being enslaved in local households, so it's much more of a local slave economy. What role in those households did the enslaved Pequots play? So many times you had uh, a nervousness on the part of English colonists about male uh, natives residing in households or working on farms. Um, they were just, you know, it was partially lived experience and partially sort of actual fears too. Uh, male natives were seen as more rebellious, more likely to run away, more dangerous. Uh, whether or not this was true, this is a perception. Um, and often, often male, you know, enslaved natives would just simply run away uh, and, and return back to relatives or friends or uh, somewhere else. For women and children, it was harder for them to often run away. And so uh, very quickly the English learned that if they uh, either kept family units together, sometimes they separated them intentionally, but um, either way, if they retained uh, Indian women and children in households as more, to, more domestic labor, um, sometimes you know, they might be working outside, uh, but less likely in the field just because of English gender norms. Uh, they didn't see that as women's work often. Um, that they found that they could they could retain them for longer without the likelihood of running away or, or having the Indian women and children rebelling against them again internally in the household. So a lot of it was was supplementing domestic duties and labor over time. And with King Philip's War, you mentioned that the um, Native people who were enslaved were sent very far from home, not only to the West Indies, but to mm. Morocco, to mm. Spain. What labor were they being put to um, after the war? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, clear that the Native men seem to have just sort of disappeared into a wider world of, of um, racialized slavery, which is to say that most of them probably ended up on plantations and working. Although there's other sources that indicate that natives were seen as having specialized talents in terms of hunting and fishing. And so there are some instances where there's a preference stated for Native Americans to not be just out in the plantations, but actually be um, in uh, and operating in different ways within plantation economies in Jamaica or Barbados or Bermuda. Um, Sometimes uh, in terms of provisioning uh, for hunting and fishing, other times in terms of just doing more um, domesticated, domestic household duties. But there's other examples of enslaved New England natives being sent uh, to Tangier, Morocco, for example, and some of them end up um, rowing in galley ships for the British Navy. And there's a few pieces of correspondence uh, that, that I and others have come across and analyzed, and it's really kind of interesting. There's this uh, one ship captain in particular who is stationed in Tangier. He has a galley ship, and, and galley ships are better for navigating the Mediterranean because you don't need to rely on winds, which is uh, sometimes very sporadic in the Mediterranean uh, basin in the region. And so he writes back to the Board of Admiralty and he says, uh, back in London, and says, look, I need rowers, you need to send me some either enslaved or paid rowers. And then he writes back a few months later and says, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I just got a, a shipment of enslaved New England natives and I'm going to force them to row on my ship. And actually I'm finding they're pretty good rowers and so good, in fact, that if if we could start a war in New England on an annual basis and keep on shipping fresh supplies of, of New England natives to serve as, as rowers, that would be really terrific. Um, and and it's, it's horrible, right? It's this callous sort of uh, statement coming from the ship captain, but it also is a window into the mentality of people who are immersed in this larger system of Atlantic slavery that's... Um, it's just commonplace uh, to, to take captives, to take people who are rebelling against you, to take 
uh, racial others and force them into labor, even though they've essentially done nothing wrong, right? Um, although in the case of these Indian men, they were seen as, as having rebelled against the English. But again, it's taking place within a larger structure of colonialism, where the pressures on land and resources uh, essentially forced natives to, to push back and fight back. Um, leading to King Philip's War. So it's very complicated. I want to jump to the end of the century briefly and to look a little bit at how by by 1690, by 1700, this practice of indigenous slavery has, has evolved. Um, and I want to look for a moment at the character of Tituba. Um, and Tituba is listed in the Salem court records uh, as Indian, uh, as many as 15 times. Um, she, of course, belonged right. to the Reverend Samuel Paris, whose household stood at the center of the Salem witch episode of 1692. And the historical record shows that he brought her to Salem Village from Barbados. So I'm curious... Uh, in your opinion, what does her story suggest about the evolution of the slave trade by the end of the 17th century and really the development of the Atlantic world as a whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a really interesting episode in many ways, and her one individual life does represent, I think, larger trends. I mean, uh, just to get her story sort of out there, first of all, as you've sort of hinted or indicated, it's not entirely clear what her background is. Um, Barbados as an island was not inhabited at the time of English conquest and, and colonization in the 1620s. So uh, she's, her indigenous heritage doesn't, isn't rooted in Barbados, right? So, and this is actually common. Uh, a lot of the indigenous slavery that's happening in the 17th century is partially about repopulating uh, in a forcible way, uh, these Caribbean islands that had been largely depopulated through the process of Spanish colonization and conquest, right? Because there was millions and millions of natives who had died or been forced off islands um, in the 16th century, whether through disease or through warfare or enslavement. And so when the English come to many of these islands, like Jamaica, like Barbados and other places, um, if they want indigenous slaves, they have to bring them from other places. And so uh, Tichuba represents that process. Um, scholars are not entirely sure uh, where she came from, but probably the northern coast of South America seems to be the most likely uh, possibility because there were several attempts uh, in the 1660s and 1670s by English merchants from Barbados to go uh, sail south to South America, slave raid on the coast, and bring back natives uh, to be sold into the labor market uh, on Barbados. On Barbados, And we know there were indigenous slaves on Barbados as well in the 1660s, 1670s. Anyway, so that's uh, one very, very good possibility. Uh, so she is, is brought from elsewhere as an enslaved person. Um, gets purchased by Samuel Paris. Samuel Paris comes uh, or goes from Barbados in 1678 to Salem, Massachusetts, brings along Tichupa and uh, her later husband, John. And then in the 1690s, uh, the Salem Witch Trials uh, blows up and Tichupa finds herself uh, at the center of this as an Indian woman. As you say, the court records are very clear about that identity. Um, and uh, scholars have, have not contested that. It seems very uh, logical and possible. But I would say, too, stepping back, one of the things that is interesting about this time period is that in the 1690s, between 1690 and 1720, perhaps, New England begins to more fully enter into a wider Atlantic world of slavery, meaning that uh, New Englanders had almost, from the beginning, had different kinds of, of, of slaves and slave people. So as we were just talking about the Pequot War, there were Native American slaves as early as 1638 in New England, uh, up through the century, through King Philip's War, through the end of the century. And there was also African slaves as well. Uh, 1638 in Boston, other places uh, began to slowly import um, enslaved Africans but not directly from Africa. Typically, these were New England merchants who would go to the Caribbean, uh, take um, food items, wood, uh, barrels, and so forth, um, cattle, horses, from New England down to the Caribbean to help provision the, the sugar islands. And then they would bring back sort of 
what they saw as kind of the leftovers of um, the Atlantic black slave trade and, and bring back, um, you know, maybe less valuable enslaved Africans and sell them locally in New England. But starting in the 1690s and, and up into the early 18th century, New England merchants began to sail directly to Africa, to the coast of West Africa, and then sell most of them, uh, the enslaved Africans off in the Caribbean, and then bring back some to New England. So 1690 is really a pivotal time in terms of New England and this wider Atlantic world. Um, and the fact that Tichaba is a Native American reminds us that even as New England colonies are sort of embracing African slavery more widely, that indigenous slavery doesn't actually disappear in any of these English colonies, whether it's in the Caribbean or New England. Why do you think it took so much longer for African slavery to take root in New England? Yeah, it's certainly a conundrum, a question that historians have sort of wrestled with. And I think the traditional answer is that, well, New Englanders didn't have plantations, first of all, so there was no need for large-scale labor. Uh, second of all, New Englanders were more hesitant about slavery. Um, I think the first, maybe you could make that case. I think the second is, is not true in the sense that everything that I've seen, uh, New Englanders are a part of this wider world of slavery, uh, and there's correspondence from governors of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. They recognize the importance of slavery. They know it's important for the Caribbean. Uh, New Englanders need the Caribbean. They need the, the Sugar Islands. They need these large-scale slavery uh, situations and plantations uh, because that's a big part of the export market for New England in terms of, of food items and so forth. So it's not really about hesitancy to slavery. I, th I mean, my theory, and I think, you know, talking with other scholars as well and, and trying to understand how this actually works, my running theory is that actually indigenous slavery, along with um, white indentured servitude, provided enough of a labor base in New England for a long time that it was actually not necessary to tap into this wider world of African slavery and the transatlantic African slave trade. And so what you see is that when the availability of indigenous slaves begins to sort of come to an end uh, in terms of wars to be fought or native nations to be conquered or whatever else, by the, end of the eight, uh, by the end of the 17th century into the early 18th century, even though there are still en enslaved indigenous people up through 1730, 1740, it's precisely when there's this lull in between, you know, kind of the end of the Indian Wars in New England and um, the rise of, of large-scale African slavery in New England. It's right in that sort of pivot moment that New England turns to uh, the, the wider African slave trade more, more, more wholeheartedly. So I think, in my mind, uh, that, that doesn't explain everything, but um, to omit the indigenous slavery piece of this is to miss a really important part of the way in which indigenous slavery sustained labor demands in New England for almost a century, one could say, um, at least 70, 80 years before then New Englanders turn to, to African slavery. And then when they do, it's a really short time period, right? Between 1720 and 1770, essentially, is sort of the peak of African slavery in New England. Uh, and then, of course, there's all these gradual emancipation acts that are passed, and slavery slowly, very slowly, uh, begins to fade in New England. Do we know or do we have an estimate of how many indigenous people were enslaved during the 17th century? It's hard to tell, and this is something I, I hope that collectively we can come up with. I think that a safe estimate would be several thousand, uh, but it's really hard to know. Um, you know, you're talking maybe up to four or five hundred in Pequot War, maybe, you know, a hundred in the intervening uh, years for crimes and debt and so forth, and then one to two thousand uh, in King Philip's War. We have um, firm numbers in some cases. In other cases, we just have um, stories of enslavement without numbers attached to them. So the best thing we can do is just provide um, estimates. And, and that's really only the stuff that's recorded, right? Uh, the incidences of other kinds of slavery 
I think, um, that surely existed that eluded documentation uh, is a piece of this that is always elusive. So um, several thousand, uh, two, three, four, uh, four at the high end probably, um, but certainly two as a, a solid starting point. For our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the historical source material you've been working with as you are exploring these questions about indigenous and African slavery? Sure. So one of the great joys, I mean, this has been a difficult project for me personally. It's its anyone who works on a history of slavery knows it's a, a super depressing thing to work on. And um, <laughs> I don't, uh, you know... <laughs> It's just it's something you manage all the time, right? Um, but one of the great things about this project is it's forced me to get out into different kinds of archives. And so I've uh, you know, been to Bermuda, the Bahamas, Barbados, and Jamaica. And I know before you judge me, uh, they all sound lovely, but um, these archives are not always in the best condition. They're not always easily accessible, especially in Jamaica. And so you're not sitting on the beach reading 17th century documents, right? You're, you're in the archive and you're struggling through horrible descriptions of treatment of enslaved people and, and trying to tabulate uh, people who are often invisible uh, in other ways to the record. So um, a lot of what I'm looking at uh, are just official colony records. I mean, that's the first place to start with, right? What are the, the, the leaders of these places saying about what they do and, and, and uh, who is on their islands? So they have to send reports back to the Board of Trade and Plantation in London um, every couple of years, and uh, they're asked questions. How many slaves are on the island, right? How many indigenous people? So that's one place, but that doesn't tell the whole story. None of these things tell the whole story, right? So everything from uh, tax lists. Uh, so in Jamaica, for example, each parish uh, has an annual poll tax, and um, you know sometimes the number of slaves are listed, but often what you have too, which I think is interesting, is you have... Uh, People of color who have found their freedom through various mechanisms also show up on these pool tax records. So it's an evidence of sort of people who move through the system and emerge on the other side in semi-successful um, ways. And they own land and sometimes actually own other people uh, as a result of receiving their own freedom and working their way up uh, in society. But uh, the shipping records is another way in which this is really helpful. Um, different kinds of correspondence, the personal papers of different kinds of people, uh, different merchants uh, whose um, financial records, uh, the paper trail of finances, you know, um, is a really good way to sort of counterbalance what people say they're doing. They might not say they're slave trading, but if they're selling Indian slaves off on the side, then you can tell that something else is happening. Um, newspaper reports of different things, runaway slave ads are really helpful as well. Um, so a, a wide variety of sources, uh, wills um, and probate records. So when people die, um, if, if they have a will and they uh, you know, parcel out their slave population to different children, then suddenly we have a record of people who are otherwise invisible suddenly come out with names uh, and they're given to different children. The sale of plantations in Barbados, um, in Barbados at least, plantations got sold often with the enslaved population and the cattle with that plantation. So sometimes we have listing of enslaved people uh, that gets sold with that plantation. So a wide variety. Uh, none of them provide the whole story, but you start to piece it together, tabulate the numbers, keep track of different people in a database, and um, suddenly a fuller picture emerges over time. What do you hope that people take away from your scholarship that you've already done and also looking ahead at your, at your upcoming book project? Well, I think that... There's several possible takeaways. Um, some are are positive, I guess. Some are are more negative. Um, I mean, the first is is on the more negative side. It's just kind of the realization that no matter what the national narratives are, the stories we tell ourselves to give ourselves meaning and a place in in this world and sense of history and rootedness um, that we have a really difficult history and, and I think we kind of know this intuitively in some ways um, but when we talk about what makes that history difficult often the first thing we do is point to black slavery to African slavery and um, 
That is certainly the case, and I would never dispute that at all. That is like the biggest blemish that we carry around in our collective moral conscious, consciousness. And I think that that's right. But there's this other piece that my own teaching and research and, and writing, I hope, is helping to illuminate along with many others, is a part of the darkness of our nation's past is also how we've treated indigenous peoples that were here first. And I wish I could say that, you know, we've found a way to deal with this in a positive way, uh, but it goes from bad to worse in some ways. I mean, if the Pequot War and King Philip's War was the end of that, then that'd be fine. But as a nation, you know, after 1776, just marching across the continent and fighting war after war and forcing natives under reservation and underfeeding them and starving them and relocating them. I mean, it, it is a horrific, horrific history. And um, so that's part of, I, I hope, the takeaway is just the sense of like, when you see stuff in the news, whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter activists who, um, you know, are, are protesting a police shooting or something like that, to have this sort of longer sense of history and injustice, I think is really, really helpful and important. And the same is true with like the Dakota Access Pipeline. When you see Native Americans just down this weekend camped down in the National Mall with the teepees and the, the protests and everything else, um, you, I, I hope, have a better sense of, um, yeah, it's not just the pipeline. That's a really important part of this history. But we're also talking about centuries of mistreatments and um, being sidelined and enslaved and killed and lied to and, and on and on and on, right? So, you know, I know supposedly we're in a post-fact world, but um, these things matter and these histories matter. And I hope that your listeners and people who read my work would have um, a better sense of how to cultivate compassion and, um, I don't know, even activism today on behalf of peoples that have been historically maligned and mistreated and, and killed off. Um, to me, this is really important. Um, but I would say a more positive aspect of my work is that I try to focus on, on the agency of people who are in very difficult situations. I try to find stories and tell stories of people who fought the system or who found a way to circumvent, um, you know, laws and restrictions and the process of colonization and who forge new identities and, and, um, and forge new ground, forge new ways of being in this oppressive world. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a story of, of uplift, I guess, in some ways of people who uh, enslaved men and women, Africans, natives, uh, who found a way to fight the system to carve out a sense of themselves within this oppressive environment. Um, to me, that's it's important to tell those stories too because they, they give us hope. They balance um, what can otherwise be a really depressing tale of, of suppression and and uh, you know um, long term kinds of uh, labor and coercion and death ultimately. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to be our guest, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks, Hillary. It was a pleasure to be here, and thanks for your, your good questions, too. I appreciate it. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past episodes, as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at www.plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by Hillary Goodno and Tom Begley, with support from Plymouth Plantation Incorporated and the Museum Experience Group. Our theme music was composed by John Prevedini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>